If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Skotsko, and in this episode, my guest is Rich Miranoff. Around the Silicon Valley, Rich is known as the product mensch, and for good reason. Educated at Yale and Stanford, Rich is a 30-year veteran of product management across multiple enterprises and startups, who now consults as an interim VP of product, helping companies get their product organizations working at top notch. Over the last 18 years, he's worked with over 120 tech companies, including Yahoo, Wealthfront, White Hat Security, Wind River, Euclid Analytics, Pushpay, and Strategizer, among many, many others. He's an unofficial advisor to many chief product officers and senior execs throughout the world of technology and is a lecturer at business schools worldwide. In short, Rich has deep, deep experience in product leadership and is one of the few people I consider to be a true expert, not just at product management, but at the leadership and the structure of product organizations themselves. If you are at all involved in building a company or working with a product organization, trust me, you want to go deep into this man's world. We cover a lot in this episode, starting with what product leaders actually do, how Rich diagnoses organizational misalignments and creates early wins in riding the ship and getting people back on board, how does he create psychological safety within his teams, what are some of the unique challenges to doing product management in the world of artificial intelligence and data science, how to defuse tension between different functional groups in an organization, the challenges of imposter syndrome, and much, much more. If you're interested in product and culture, you are not going to want to miss this episode. So without any further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with the one and only Rich Miranoff. Officially, Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Great. What a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks. Oh, it's always it's always fun to talk with you, and I am beyond excited to have this conversation. Um, so one of the questions that I wanted to just start with really, really quickly is I, in my research getting ready for this conversation, I came across... At one point, you said something like, you know, nobody grows up wanting to be a product manager. You know, it's always something else. It's a firefighter. It's an astronaut. It's, it's a whatever. And I was curious, what, what did you actually have your sights set on uh, when you were growing up? And then how did you end up being a product manager? Sure. I, I think if we go way back, I'd say I was really interested in math and physics and, and hard science, uh, which is, you know, something that eight-year-olds understand, right? You know, you drop an apple and all this stuff. Uh, when I got to university, I studied physics, I actually have a bachelor's in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a really quick sort uh, at my university between the students who were going to actually be physicists and the ones who were simply studying it. And I was in the second category. So it was clear, you know, there's a select group. If you're not that brilliant by the time you're in university, you probably missed out. Uh, so took a few programming courses, Moved out to Silicon Valley, got my first job as a software developer, writing COBOL back in the days when, uh, actually, this is pre-electricity. And so you, <laughs> you actually had to carve your code into stone tablets and then carry them over to the compiler. So upper body strength was really important in those days. Uh, Very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so did that for a few years, dropped out, did an MBA, uh, came back into tech and had somebody tap me on the shoulder say, we're looking for a product manager for this group. Uh, do you want to do it? Do you want to be it? And I had no clue, no idea what that meant. So, of course, I said yes. What was that transition like for you? Uh, so, uh, we're going back to the middle 80s here. I was at a company called Tandem Computers in the mini computer days. Very great, wonderful corporation in its time. And corporate strategy was this pretty small group of people. 
you know, MBA, take a view of the market kind of things, five-year, nine-year vision. But it was very, very disconnected from actually getting anything done. Mm. So uh, a lot of blue sky, a lot of, yeah, maybe the world will get there in 10 years, but didn't really help the business. So uh, Tandem was actually tilting up a group to build uh, connectivity software, networking software for Apple Computer, which in those days had a factory in Fremont that built a really famous product called the Macintosh. And mm, I've heard of that, I feel like. Yeah, so so uh, we were setting up that new group, and one of the strategy folks asked me if I'd be the product manager for this Apple stack. And again, no idea what that meant, but I got to hang out with really very cool people for a few years and build some interesting communications products. Totally. Do you remember what that transition was like for you? Like, what was your first week like on the job? Because most people I talk to, their first week in product is sort of this, somebody kicked me into the deep end off a very high diving board. I've been screaming on the way down and now I'm in the water. (laughs) And I'm not sure what's going on. Absolutely. So no help, no suspenders, no training, no onboarding. Here's your new badge. You sit over here. Here's your team. Uh, And I had no idea what it was I was supposed to do. So not surprisingly, the... uh, the engineering folks on my team led really hard. So it was all about specs and customer interviews and things that the developers demanded of me. So it took me, I don't know, a couple of three years to figure out what it was I was supposed to do outside of take direction from engineers. <laughs> I, I understand that feeling very well working in a, an extremely technical organization myself. It's you can feel buffeted about almost like you're at the mercy of a lot of win, different winds that just keep changing <laughs> and all very opinionated. Very much. And, and what was funny was at least for that group, they were telling me to do the right things. It wasn't a mistake. So uh, I launched the very first TCP IP stack or tandem computers in, gosh, it would have been like 89. And honestly, I couldn't tell you why that was important at the time. But it's turned out that TCP has been really handy to tilt up the web and communicate. Yeah, that's, that's it's a, a big, big one. one. And, and, you know, I was busy writing down what the developers told me this might be useful for which turned out to be file transfer or something. Uh, but I was jumping in and, and had essentially no. How do you approach that? Like when you, when you jump into a whole new space that you, you know, really don't have a background in, don't know much about, what's your, what is your approach for getting your head around it and actually getting from zero to 60? I, I think first you get from zero to five okay. or zero <laughs> to one. Uh, you know, I think I try to bring some humility in every day. Uh, when I drop into a new organization, I assume I don't really understand their product and I don't really understand their customers or their need. Although, it turns out there's there's patterns here. So uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I've consulted with 125 companies since I hung out my shingle in the early uh, aughts. And you start to see things that look very familiar. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, I try to be really open and uneducated about the details of the product and the details of the market. On the other hand, I bring forward a lot of examples that taste or smell the same. Mm-hmm. You know, two-sided markets are very much the same. Mm-hmm. And enterprise software is of a, of a kind. And very low-end, uh, fast-turn consumer software that doesn't have a lot of cost to it, may only be used a few times, you know, has some similarities among that set of things. So how do we sort how do we match patterns, you know, and same with product organizations. There's, there's some things I see that 
before the fifth sentence is out of anybody's mouth, I have a good idea what's going on. Yeah, that's perfect. So let's actually use that as a, as a transition point. So a, a lot of your work, uh, you know, I've heard you describe yourself as a smoke jumper VP of product many times. And, you know, I think in, in one of our, our previous conversations, you know, you described me, you described it to me as, you know, I get the call when I'm kind of the last call they make sometimes where they've, they've really, they know they've, they've, it's not going well and they need help. And so they, they call you and, and they're saying, help us, you know, write the ship, so to speak. I'm really interested in how you assess an organization, right? So you, whether that's from the outside before you get involved or once you get in there, you know, could you take, take me through, tell me a little bit about how it is you figure out what's actually going on and then what, you know, how do you figure out what to do about that? Sure. And, and to start by identifying that almost all of these are unique in some way or other, um, uh, was it uh, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina starts with the idea that happy families are all the same, but yeah. unhappy families are each unique in their unhappiness. Indeed. Right? All and dysfunctional in their own special way. That's right. And, and I'm not getting called in to look after the really well-organized, well-running, happy, beaming teams, right? So there's a lot of discovery here. And much of it I see is really basic uh, executive behavior. And, more, and really basic organizational stuff. So mm-hmm. I know that if product management reports to sales, there's a whole set of symptoms I'm going to expect, like we keep mortgaging the future for the current and we're really only working on individual deals and there are no business cases for anything. And the assumption is that if one customer asks for it, we don't need to check. We should just assume that's what the market wants. So on its face, I could look at that org chart and never actually get in the building yet and have some suspicions about what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Likewise, if, if I count on my fingers and I notice that there's 20 or 30 or 40 folks on the engineering and design side for every product manager. Mm, not a good sign. Not a good sign. And the best, the best product managers are going to struggle here. And everybody who's not absolutely the best, strongest, tallest, run the three-minute mile product managers are going to fail because you can't possibly serve two or three or four teams ever. And on top of that, we're expecting you to know what's happening in the markets and what, what customers and segments want. So some of these things are completely obvious. Some of them are pretty subtle and crazy. So um, I had a very, very short engagement with a startup here in San Francisco. Um, and I did essentially no vetting. They called me up and said, they really want me to come in as their interim head of product. They need one. And I didn't do my homework. Uh, started on a Monday. Um, oh boy, here oh we boy. go. What happened? Well, sort of first thing Wednesday morning, I called a couple of founders back in a room. And I said, you know, small change of plan. Uh, it's become obvious to me that the, the two of you, you two founders, won't take a meeting together. Ooh. And, and that's the source of almost everything that's broken in the company, and I can't fix that. So the new arrangement is, I'm not going to invoice you for Monday or Tuesday, and you guys are never going to admit I was in your building. <laughs> I like it. It's a good awareness to pull the ripcord early. That's right. Names change to protect the innocent and the guilty. Um, of course. So, so that's at the extreme end. And in between, you know, it's all about uh, taking an hour each to interview every major stakeholder and everybody on the product team and 
assorted designers and developers and salespeople and marketing people and figure out what's broken. Yeah. Right. So I don't know what's broken. You know, there's patterns I can apply, but uh, it, it's it's just like the retrospective process, right? Okay, we spent a week doing this. We all sat down. What's one thing we could fix? What's twenty things we could fix? And and if I can glean a couple or three things that are relatively straightforward to repair in my first couple of weeks, then we've made positive progress. We've shown that progress is you know is in the wind. People are relieved to get one thing off their list, and then we can tackle the next one. Uh, but rarely obvious to me what what the starting point is until I get there. No matter how no matter how much homework I've done. For sure. Yeah. One one thing I've heard you talk about elsewhere is that let's say you're a new product leader, right? You you get promoted into a role. Let's say you go from a, a sort of a line individual contributor, product manager, to suddenly a director of product, or maybe you get a, a double bump, and all of a sudden you're the head of head of product. Uh, whoopsies. And uh, so now you're now you're swimming at the deep end. And uh, probably don't have the little floaties on your arms. So one thing I've heard you say to somebody in that um, situation was, "Don't make any major changes for your first two weeks." And I'm curious, what um, you know, when when you you sort of operate in the extreme end of that type of example, where you you literally parachute in and it's like, "Okay, go." What does do you have a what What do you do in your first two weeks, and then what do you do for the next say two to four weeks after that? Could you kind of take us through what if you have a rough approach that's even if it's specifically tailored to the situation? Yeah, and it varies a lot. And, and if we back up a little bit, so I would say I try not to do anything serious in the first week, maybe two. Uh, somebody mm-hmm. who's who's promoted in from the outside, who's hired in from the outside, I usually tell them to wait a month or two because mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of interesting product issues, organizational issues, market issues that are not obvious. Mm-hmm. And to drop in on a week's notice to start moving things around can be really dangerous. But yeah. back to me. Uh, so again, first week is meet with everybody, listen, take lots of notes. And taking notes, by the way, is useful for two reasons. One is because I might actually look at them. And two, it, it's a way to signal respect and that I'm listening. So I'm going to take notes regardless. Uh, I would say at the end of the first week, the the thing I do most likely, if I have a team already reporting to me in this interim situation, is I figure out which of those folks are product folks. Mm-hmm. So not unusually, half or more of the people on the product team either don't want to be there, have pretty poor skill and, and emotional match, or for some reason should be doing something else in the company. Mm-hmm. and that's that's really one of the very first things. So I'm already thinking about which of the folks on the team have sort of, you know, good hands, good bones, can be mentored up to be product folks, or maybe they already are. And then which of the folks on that same team am I looking to find another home for in the company? Maybe they're a better fit for field sales engineer or support or, you know, put them into marketing if they're really marketing people. Uh, there's rarely a salesperson on that team, but sometimes because I can't, I can't rearrange the department, which I know I'm going to have to do in a few weeks. And I can't open up a bunch of new recs for real product folks if I haven't made that quick sort. And it's mm-hmm. it's not perfect, but I've done it a bunch of times. So I feel like I'm pretty good at that. Uh, and, you know, I think of it in its own way as humane. Somebody who's struggling in a product job and really failing due to their own issues really deserves to be doing something they can be a good match for. Uh, when I see the entire team failing, which I often do, 
I can't write that off to any individual person because the odds that this company has hired six or 10 of the worst product managers in the world is statistically, you know, not very high, right? Pretty low. So, you know, first week or two, what's broken within the product team? What's broken in the bigger company? I'm listening for lots of um, higher bit problems like we're only selling the old products that we've been selling for years and none of our new products are selling. Hmm. Let's think about sales quotas and incentives, right? Or uh, Mm -hmm. our customers, uh, the folks coming through the funnel, through the marketing funnel, seem to want a different product than sales wants to sell them. Hmm. Messaging, positioning, uh, you know, wrong use cases, wrong audience. Uh, Sometimes we're in the wrong segment. Uh, I'm looking at pricing and packaging issues. Uh, if you've got 45 or 122 optional choices for your product, then you and your salesperson and your customer have to make 45 or 122 yes or no choices. They're never going to get that right. Uh, and it also means that engineering has to plan for two to the 45th different combinations of product, right? And support's got to support it, uh, right? So those are things that are sort of obvious on their face. Um, usually takes me two or three or four weeks to figure out what's going on with the executive team because that's more subtle and, mm-hmm. and everybody may not be um, acting out in the same way every day. Um, but does the executive mm-hmm. team get along with itself? Is there a strategy? And, and the best answers say, yes, we have one strategy. Uh, probably not as good to have no strategies, but worse to have 15. Right. Uh, are we investing mm-hmm. in the actual strategy that we say we are? Um, you know, so, so it's a lot of observation. It's a lot of human observation. Um, I don't usually get involved at that stage mm-hmm. in individual requirements or individual escalations or you know the details of the product because I'm I'm just not that smart about them. Uh, but a lot of these organizational patterns. They're tremendously obvious to me, having seen them many dozens of times. Yeah, yeah, I've heard you describe yourself and uh, as a real student of human behavior, and, and that that's definitely a requirement for anyone in product, certainly in product leadership. Yeah, how do you go about building the the trust? I suppose is is the word to start to make the changes you believe are necessary. Like how, you know, showing up as someone from the outside, that seems like that would be a really hard thing. Uh it is hard in its own way, but as somebody who intends to be a short timer, and part of my mission is actually to help run the search and hiring my full-time replacement. So I'm coming in the door with a lot of freedom that somebody who's a long-term full-time employee doesn't have because they're worried about staying long enough to vest stock and staying in good friendship with all their peers and you know, if the CEO had a bad childhood, then not getting fired this week, right? Um, and as a short timer, I have a lot of freedom to say what's true in the politest way. So, you know, you praise in public and you share really difficult feedback in private, but I get to pull the CEO or the VP of whatever into a conference room and say, here's what's really broken, right? In, in a polite way. But here's what I think we need to do to fix it. Are you in or out? And if we come to some major strategic disagreement about this, I'm just as happy to leave as not. Uh, 
and again, it being one of the last phone calls somebody's going to make for these kinds of situations, I've got a lot of short-term positional authority to push in ways that, uh, you know, I have the freedom to do. Other people don't have the freedom to do. So, so I'm much less worried about that. But, um, you know, you always want to coax folks along. Uh, one of the first challenges almost always is that there's a roadmap and nothing on the roadmap is actually what we're working on. Um, and there's, you know, 45 sales escalations for the 45 largest deals. And those are all getting pushed through by the CEO. Yep. Right. Uh, f- frequent pattern. Yep. And so it's my job to describe that problem in an aggregate way so that everybody understands why we got nothing done on last month's roadmap or last quarter's roadmap because we did a bunch of other things that weren't planned. Um, and that's a way to get ahead of the next few escalations. It's also a way to change the narrative. Often when that's the case, the folks on the sales and marketing side have the perception that engineering's not building anything and product's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, as evidenced by the fact that most of the stuff on the roadmap was later never shipped. And if we can turn that around, uh, for instance, uh, oh, there was a company years and years ago, um, I dropped in as the head of products, uh, I think it was six or eight years ago, and some folks in the network security business. And they hadn't shipped any new features in six months. Wow. Wow. As a SaaS-based security Ooh. software company, right? Um, really tough. And it wasn't that they weren't working hard. It was that engineering was lacking product support and they would get 75% done on something and then they'd get jerked around to the next thing. So they had a shelf full of 91% finished features that had never shipped. Mm. And everybody in the executive suite was absolutely sure that engineering actually could not ship anything. Right. Because clearly they hadn't. So obviously, obviously. So and in the first day or two, I had everyone tell me that engineering can't ship anything and they're useless. And we should fire them all and start again. Uh, so I sat down with the head of engineering, who's a dear friend of mine now, years and years later. We've done other things other places. And I asked him what on the shelf his team could finish by Friday. Notice it didn't matter what it was. Yeah, right? anything. And so on Friday, we dropped a dot release that had a couple of very minor features in it and a few bug fixes. And on the next Monday, which is my second Monday, I was able to, to go into the executive staff meeting and say, we ship new features. We ship two, two small new features to, uh, today, Friday, whatever it was, right? And suddenly, the, the meme, the conversation had to flip from, well, they never ship anything, which is an engineering problem to, well, wait a minute, why did they ship those two features instead of the six features I wanted? Mm-hmm. Right? Notice now that's a product problem. Because mm-hmm. product, in theory, is sequencing and, and, and prioritizing the work. And so, in very little time, we were able to shift the discussion from engineering sucks, right? engineering's useless, to how do I get them to ship the thing I want? Which, you know, move that right over into the product category. And so now we could argue about whether product was choosing the right things. And that was a a huge psychological lift to the engineering team because I was able to come back and say, by the way, big round of applause. Here's the box of donuts I brought in or whatever it was. We've shipped something. We've really turned this thing around. What else do we have on the shelf that's close to done? 
so that we can now do a more of a product sort, right? Okay, for next Friday's release, you know, what two things that I want are near completion. And we bought five or six weeks worth of getting things done, which is enough time to actually do the negotiating and the sort of shuttle diplomacy on what actually is important. Right. So in six weeks, we were able to move from engineering does nothing to we're going to have loud arguments about what's in the priority list and product has to be there. Which is a far, far better place to be. Because now you're at least. Oh, yeah. At least now now the cat's out of the bag. Right. In, in the sense that, OK, wait a minute. They are clearly capable of actually getting things done if we let them do it. Um, you know, I, I believe I've heard you describe the, the number one killer of motivation and, and pr- source of frustration with engineering teams is, is basically, you know, executive shiny object syndrome, right? Where it's like they're just getting jerked around from thing to thing and they never get to finish and ship anything. Right. Absolutely. And there's this weird mythology that says if we're agile, then we can change our minds every <laughs> Tuesday and Friday at 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. local time, whatever that is. Uh, teams that don't finish anything quit. Teams that don't finish anything lose their motivation. Teams that don't finish anything don't care. Mm-hmm. And caring is probably the number one most important uh, feature I see in engineering teams that get a lot of really good stuff done. They love their users. They care. They internalize the stuff. When there's an embarrassing bug, somebody works all weekend to fix it, not because we made them, but because they, they want their users to love them and they're embarrassed. Yeah, no, I t- let's talk about that a little bit because I've, I've heard, um, you know, one of the things that you, you've talked a lot about in, in your work is in defining what a product leader is, is that one of the big responsibilities of a product leader is really to build and nurture a product team and, and create the conditions where not just product, but engineering can, can really work to their best, you know, to, to their best possible thing. Could you, t- let's talk a little bit about what are those conditions? You know, you've, you've hinted a bit at them, uh, you know, such as connection to their users, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. Um, I said momentum, but talk to me a little bit about that. What are those conditions and, and then how do you actually go about creating those? So I usually start on the engineering side before I get to the product side. Now, important to know, I'm never in charge of an engineering team. So this is really coaching, mentoring, and playing nicely with whoever runs engineering, assuming there is somebody. But mm-hmm. uh, I first look at the structure of those teams. So you know, good evidence now for many, many decades that long-lived, completely staffed teams that get to work on one thing for a while and have the skills and resources they need get really good stuff done. And resource pools suck. And mm-hmm. project-oriented things where we tilt up a group and then we tear them down, we tilt up another group and we move the people around, don't lead to good results. That, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be controversial, but... Uh, a lot of places it is. So, so first, let's figure out if engineering is organized in a way that makes any sense. Uh, second thing is to make sure that every one of those teams has a full-time, assigned, dedicated product manager. Uh, and since those teams probably shouldn't be more than eight to ten people, choose your number, then I, I already know how many folks need to be on the product team if I know how big the engineering team is. Again, that would seem mm-hmm. obvious. But I see all kinds of product managers struggling with 50 folks on the maker side. You know, makers being yeah. developers and designers and tech writers and QA engineers and whatever else, right? Who actually do work, who actually build something that we care about, right? Um, so, you know, is engineering organized in a, in a way to 
have success is product at least matched against the engineering teams as a first choice. Um, and is each of the product managers clear that they're supposed to spend about half their time looking inward with their team, doing all the team level things like retrospectives and context and incoming, you know, descriptions of problems and such and half their time out with real users and real customers and real prospects and folks who didn't buy our product and sitting in on the support calls and all the things they have to do. Right. And that they're, they're bringing that mm-hmm. in because of course that's what's going to motivate our team. And then the third thing I'm always looking for is to get out ahead of, uh, again, I'm mostly on the enterprise side. So this is really important sales escalations. So to the extent that, Enterprise sales teams mm-hmm. only get paid if they close deals and they may only have two deals this quarter. And therefore those are the two most important deals in the world. And each needs this one or two little special thing that can't be really hard. I bet it's only 10 lines of code. <laughs> and can't, and can't you guys just get it done? <laughs> can't be that hard. That's right. And cause, cause can't be that hard. There's room in the current sprint. I really need it. I got to go to club in Fiji, you know, president's club and drink with my friends. Right. Uh, and so those are the like the first three things I'm looking at. Is engineering organized? Is product organized? And does product have enough clout to push back on shiny objects that come from the sales team or shiny objects that come from the executive team? Because those are, w- without those things, I think everyone fails. So notice we haven't talked yet about skills. We haven't talked about seniority or title or how we really divided up some of that work. But Gosh, if you don't have those things right, I'm not sure what else matters. Yeah, no, it's so interesting because one one of the as I was researching and, and um, getting ready for this, one like one of the talks of yours that I, I watched was your recent talk at Industry, where you, you kind of outlined a variety of product, you know, sort of team structures, org structures, um, some that you like, and some that you are, you know, somewhere in the middle, and then some that let's just say you're not a big fan of. Correct me if I'm getting this wrong. It seems like the lesson here is first assume good intent and don't blame people for the system. I, I think that's right. And and certainly there's folks in every organization who don't work hard or who don't care or, or who are for some reason a bad fit. But what I see is that if we design an organization badly, almost everybody we put into that organization fails or quits or hates their job or whatever the bad outcome is. Um, and and Again, if, if I see one or two folks in a team of eight who are struggling, then we're thinking about mentoring and coaching or skill sets or a move to some other job that they might be better at. But when I see eight of the eight product managers failing, my gut tells me, my experience tells me that first we should look at what the broader problem is, right? Why are eight of them failing? And something systemic, something broad, something repeatable and and for instance, and, and this may be giving away a deep secret here, but if I ask each of the eight of them what's in their way and they tell me and I write it down, I often have the answer in my head, right? Whoa, right? Whoa. Uh, class, it, it, Crazy talk. Know, if, we, <laughs> if we apply our product management skills to product management organizations, right? Clearly, if, if we were doing some online consumer product with a really short online sales funnel and everybody was dropping out in step three of the step five of the funnel. One of the things we might do is call up some of the folks who stepped out or look at their click streams or check the data, right? 
Mm-hmm. And, and we would notice there's some weird thing like we're asking for a zip code. It's a U.S. product and it only has four character spaces and nobody can type in a five-digit zip code. So everybody's abandoning, right? Um, as product people, we got to be curious. As product people, we have to look outside ourselves and figure out what's broken. As product people, we're analytical. We're relentless. We don't assume bad intent on the part of our users and customers. Right? We failed them if our product doesn't work. Likewise, mm-hmm. if I've got a whole team of folks, and maybe it's the engineering team that's all upset. Maybe it's often it's the sales and marketing organizations that are all upset. Well, what's broken? You know, mm-hmm. before we assign blame, before we fire somebody or move them around, uh, you know, what's what is going on? What's the root issues? And usually that takes some digging because again, salespeople will tell me that engineering doesn't work very hard. And that they must be able to get everything done. And I pretty much discount that. Right. <laughs> but it's an indicator that there's something serious. Right. Or um, we're often in yeah. the sales and marketing game of marketing's giving lots of leads to sales that sales can't close, according to marketing. Mm-hmm. They're great leads. They're great leads, right? And Gary leads. Right. I was and just going to say sales that. Sales <laughs> is all upset because marketing is bringing them all these folks that don't qualify for the product or in the wrong segment or don't have buying intent. And the truth is always somewhere in between. So it's not about taking sides. It's about figuring out what's not working. Right. Of course, I'm there really often to defend the product managers who've had no air cover, who've had no umbrella. Mm-hmm. And so I assume mm-hmm. good intent, as you said, if we go all the way back to the Agile Manifesto, right? We believe in people over processes, right? I don't care if it's yep. in JIRA. If we wrote a JIRA ticket for the wrong thing, it's not useful, right? Um, yep. So, you know, we, and, and every leader should do this in their own setting, right? Check in with their folks, check in with the folks in the other departments, check in with their customers and partners and suppliers and stakeholders. What's working? What's not working? Okay. Can we design an internal experiment for a few weeks and try something new? And if it doesn't work, we will write it off as an experiment and try something else. There we go. So one of the things that I think would be that I'm really curious about is um, we, we've touched we sort of talked around it a little bit, but there, this concept that I'm also hearing a lot of people talk about, particularly in the product space, like you know, you and I met at the, the Mind the Product Conference this summer. And uh, I remember this was a major theme at the leadership forum that we were at was was psychological safety. And that can mean a lot of things um, that has a sort of I've heard a lot of working definitions. I'm, I'm curious, how do you define it? And uh, well, let's just start there. So when, when you hear that term, what does that mean to you? Um, I, I think in a product context, it's the ability for the individual product managers and extended folks, of course, to raise issues about the product without being punished for it. So no product's perfect. You know, every, every product or service we have is something that every product manager has an infinite list of things they want to do better or fix or, or grow. Sure. But, you know, I want the folks, I need the folks on my team to be able to raise their hands and say, for instance, this product's not earning its keep. It's falling behind the competition. We're underinvesting in it, and the, the customers are really unhappy. Let's make a strategic choice to let it go or give it the resource it needs. Right? There's lots mm-hmm. of replacements, or it's duplicate with something else. Um, my product managers don't want to spend the next three years on something that's failing. So mm-hmm. 
I have to be actively listening and encouraging them to say what's true. Now, if, if I'm the pivot point here, if I'm the umbrella, I'm, I'm the heat shield between the product mm-hmm. managers and the executive team, because somebody on my team is going to get beaten up for saying that, then, you know, step one is that I own the message. So, you know, a good leaders, I think a lot of good leaders will tell you that when things go well, we use the we word, as in the engineering team and the product team did a really good job. And let me call out these three folks on the support and design side and two people on my team. Let's give them all a hand and name them because this went really well. We, right? Mm-hmm. And when there's a problem, when there's a disaster, if I don't know where it lives, I'll start the sentence with I. As in, hmm, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound right. I will dig in. Let me find out what's going on. I'm not sure who owns that. Notice what we didn't do was throw somebody on my team under the bus who wasn't educated. Right? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, leadership 101. Yet, but, totally. you know, in a company where there's been a lot of beatings, right? That's the old joke. The beatings will continue until morale improves, yeah. right? Um <laughs> People are afraid to say what's on their mind. They're afraid to raise issues. Af- and, and so someone has to step up and say, I'll take the heat. Now, it's easier if you don't intend to stay very long. Again, that's, a, you know, that's just a secret of, ha- of the work I've been doing recently. But I actually find that it's well-received when framed correctly. So you know, start small. Mm. How do we raise some issues that are really serious issues, problems that are getting in our way, without calling out a person individually and saying that they are a personal failure. Right? Yeah, totally. You know, what I, what I hear and what you just said is really that to have a high-functioning team, a high-functioning organization, people need to be able to speak truth and hear truth. And that isn't always the easiest thing, particularly if you've got dysfunction at the executive level. So talk to me a little bit about how you how you do that. Yeah, you're spot on and it's not always possible. Hmm. So, you know, there are occasions probably a third of the interim exec gigs I've done, I would classify as not very successful because Hmm. I wasn't able to turn an executive team around that had a lot of really complicated dysfunction out Mm -hmm. out of my scope. Can't fix that. Not the chairman of the board. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, what are the things that, uh, that we can do to build trust? Uh, one is, uh, if I can remember that most of the executive team is being thrashed and, and in lots of meetings and busy, and on average doesn't remember what's on the roadmap, which mm-hmm. I think is mostly true. Um, less true if you've got a technical founder, CEO, more true if, the, if it's somebody from the sales and marketing side. But most of the executive team, isn't spending their time thinking about what's in this month's roadmap. And so it's important mm-hmm. to find lots of vehicles to remind both the executive team and the sales and marketing side of the house what's in the roadmap probably once a week because mm-hmm. that addresses the question of are we working on anything? And it, it preempts, if you believe we weren't working on anything, then your new idea is something that clearly should jump to the top of the list because we're not working on anything. It's, Right, everyone's. I walk through engineering; they're not typing, so they're obviously not doing anything. 
That's right. And then they're wasting time sitting in conference rooms with markers in their hands, right? No, what is that? That's, that's not that? engineering. Yeah, we don't pay them to do that. But um, having a really frequent reminder of what's in the roadmap uh, has a bunch of side effects. One is that when somebody comes to me or a member of my team and says, you need to do this right away, this is really important, we get to ask the replacement question or the exclusive or question that says, well, that's great. I'm sure this is a really good idea, but what out of the things that the executive teams already agreed are the most important, you know, priorities for the company for the next month, do you suggest we throw aside? And Mm. by the way, here's, here's who's been lobbying for those things. So I'm going to need your help going to their offices and having a discussion about why you want to cancel their thing. Right. That's a bit punitive, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. And the other is you get to ask the strategy question of, Hmm, that's a good idea. Uh, the stuff in the roadmap is mostly clustered around, you know, improvements to multi-tenant SaaS this quarter or performance and scalability this quarter or opening up new markets in Asia this quarter. Uh, how does your new idea fit against those things? Or I don't see it. It's a chance to remind everybody that we have a strategy. Mm. Ideally, again, fewer than 15, one's good, two are good. Um, we have a strategy. We have work on the roadmap. We're not sitting idle. <laughs> and that lets us have a more useful, nuanced, respectful conversation than, you know, curse, 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 you guys. I just need you to do this thing. Just get it done. Right. And just get it done. And so I think that's one aspect of trust is to be the, the reminder, be the communicator that, in fact, we do have a plan. We do have a set of work underway. Uh, we're working really hard. And stuff's going to slip because, uh, I, honestly, I think I've never worked on a software project that didn't slip. Some. Not them either. It's ha- it's, it may have happened in the history of the world, but that's a separate discussion, right? We should have some padding in our, our, our schedules. We shouldn't overcommit. That's, again, hard to do. But, uh, you know, trust starts with delivering the things that we said we were going to deliver. The other, the other big builder of trust, I think, is to match the roadmap items to revenue, mm. at least the outward-facing roadmap items. Because if we've got to grow the business $25 million this quarter, then either product's helping or product's not helping. Mm-hmm. And you know, we both know that the executive team mostly listens to things that are denominated in money. Mm-hmm. Not in software deliverables, not in lines of code, not, not in, in story points, points, not in story points. Nobody cares, right? Um, we need to be able to say that this major release, that version six point five, that has all these new features and capabilities and use cases and whatever, is expected to deliver twenty million in revenue. And sales has agreed, and we have customers lined up, and we have people ready to upgrade or whatever the the bot model is so that we can defend that work on revenue grounds and not just on sort of moral purity and technical excellence. Yes. Yeah. Honestly, they don't care. Right. So yep. tying the work in the roadmap to money, uh, puts it in terms that the rest of the company cares about or customer units or daily actives or, you know, whatever the, the major economic thing of the company is stock trades, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whatever that North that's Star right. is, you know, airline flights booked, whatever it is, we're doing this major investment in a redesign of the onboarding of new travel passenger folks 
because we think if we do that, it's going to take a bunch of friction out of the system and we'll have 4% more bookings next quarter. Okay. What I love about what you're saying is what you're, what, cause what you're really describing is the, the a, a way of working with the rest of the organization in an outcomes driven way. So often that's not how organizations are thinking. That's not how executive teams in particular are thinking within an organization. If you don't have that, how do you go about sort of fostering that way of thinking so that you can have a conversation like you just described? Uh, yeah, it depends if you're starting from zero or not, and it takes a while, but, uh, well, a couple of, a couple of three techniques I might think of. One is to, uh, let's assume we're going to finish whatever's in the roadmap this month, and we're not going to yank the chain of the engineering team, but we're trying to figure out what's in next month's roadmap or next quarter's mm-hmm. roadmap. That's a really good time because we haven't signed up for all of it yet to go down the, the list and ask first the product team or first the executive team, depending on where we're starting, why do we care? How do we know what success looks like? It's, it's a sort of Socratic method. Um, well, that's really interesting, but when we finish that, what's going to be different? So, by the way, uh, Josh mm-hmm. Seiden has a really great book out called uh, Outcomes Versus Output, and I love it. It's really skinny. It's a quick, fast read. Yep. I recommend it to everybody. Uh, I, I got a lot out of it. But, you know, you want to ask that hard question of the next round of stuff rather than shaking the box on the current month or the current set of sprints. And Mm -hmm. miraculously, we'll discover that most of the executive team has no idea why they're important other than some one deal asked for it or it seemed like Mm -hmm. a good idea. Right. Um, So we're going to back ourselves into first principles. and, And I would bring forward what I believe to be problems like. Mm-hmm. support's getting an awful lot of tickets and we have to either hire some more support people or deal with some of the issues. Um, sales is reporting that there's some particular problems with a one set of competitors around a set of features and churn is too high, right? So, you know, good guesses. Right? So now we start with churn rather than go around the room and say, who's got an idea for how to reduce churn and just implement it? We're going to take a list of ideas that we think might reduce churn and we're going to throw some analysis at it. Products, product managers, you might have some, you know, uh, finance folks, whatever, you've got smart people in the room who are going to figure out their best guesses for, you know, supports reporting various people churning for various reasons. Okay. Well, let, let, let's start with the numbers. Let's start with the current situation. Let's start with the baseline. And then we're going to take our very best guess for which of these ideas is going to reduce churn. So one thing that I was, I was curious about is I've heard other people, uh, Marty Kagan in particular, talk about uh, roadmaps not being a good thing and, and not to set up a, a debate here. But I'm curious, do you think roadmaps are actually the way to go? Or do you see an alternative? Like, for example, one thing I've heard, I've heard Marty talk about, I've heard um, Christina Wiki talk about is sort of basically getting alignment around outcomes and then allowing the teams to figure out how. So you agree on the destination, but not the path. What do you, what do you think about that? I think that's useful, but it, it leaves a lot unsaid, hmm. right? So I, I have to disagree. Okay. So if, if you're doing output driven stuff, then the roadmap is your Bible mm-hmm. and people get punished for not shipping things on time. That's clearly wrong. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, I think Everybody needs a plan. If we're going to build software, we've got to have a plan. Mm-hmm. And so what I'd say is, is roadmap is going to be truest in the short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 
it's less true over time. Next quarter's roadmap is sort of 70% guess or whatever. And two quarters now is a 50% guess. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be unwilling to make changes. But if you're going to build anything that takes more than a week, you probably need a plan and some resources and to decide which is more important than other in some sequencing. Right? So if we think of the roadmap as a, as a working plan, uh, and we match it mm-hmm. against outcomes, I think getting to outcomes is hard. I think that takes sometimes a quarter, sometimes yep. a year, sometimes never. Um, so I'd love to say, you know, here's the outcomes you're driving to and delegate to the teams how they're going to do those things. But I expect those teams actually to put their own roadmaps together. Now, whether we share that and what we do and what we commit is is deeply philosophical and I'm not sure it really matters. But if we don't have a plan for the current quarter, how can marketing figure out what their events and announcement strategy is? Right. So, so sure. it's necessary to have a plan in order for our various groups and stakeholders to get shit done. Um, but we don't want to be religious mm-hmm. about it. And, and, and we want to tie it back to outcomes. Yeah, totally. So when we've done a good job of finally getting to outcomes instead of output, then we can call that roadmap thing something else if you want to call it something else. What's in a name? I know you've been doing a lot of work recently around sort of machine learning, data science, artificial intelligence. And I'm, I'm curious, how are you finding, tell, tell me a bit about how this is different or the same in, the, in those environments. And, and one maybe jumping off point is I've done a, a lot of that work myself over the last year and a half. And I found that a lot of the, a lot of the tools and approaches that probably work super well in something like a SaaS-based product that has very clear links. Between, we, we have a high degree of confidence between um, what we're going to do and the outcome we think it will drive. I found that not to be the case in machine learning largely, uh, given uh, at least on an early stage machine learning project. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about your experiences, what you're learning right now, what's top of mind, and, and how you see that shifting some of the concepts we're talking about. You bet. And, and just for entertainment value, uh, I first worked on AI in 1979. Okay. So this is not a new thing. <laughs> right? And for most of AI's history, it hasn't really worked very well. That's also not a new thing. Um, yep. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I think if you look at sort of well-understood, well-architected, classic SaaS applications, we have a really good idea of how to build them. Mm-hmm. There's good tools. There's good estimation. If you've got a team that's built a bunch of SaaS stuff, they have vague ideas of how easy or hard things are. And in some sense, you can get it all done if you just work at it right mm-hmm. lots of plugins lots of infrastructure and platforms and frameworks that can get you started and move you along i i think a lot of the machine learning and, and natural language processing and other ai stuff is in an earlier stage and so so some of the things to worry about one is that as a product manager or some random non-ai scientist i have very strong beliefs that data is going to be predictive mm-hmm. And it turns out my intuition's often wrong, maybe mostly wrong. So, mm-hmm. you know, in my head is that same executive dialogue about how hard could it be? I bet this is predictive. We can just download this data set, right? We can train up some, some machine learning and it's going to know cats and dogs or more importantly, hot dog, not hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> that, that link is Good. definitely going in the um, show notes. <laughs> if anyone doesn't know that, you, you, you must, must look, click right. that link. But, 
it turns out that a lot of times the data just doesn't predict what we want, doesn't play out the way we think. We discover a new thing or nothing, right? Uh, years and years ago, I did some work at Yahoo, and one of the things I learned there that that the Yahoo Movies folks knew all along was that the folks who rate movies only give movies one star, four stars, or five stars. Because if you're in the vast majority of people who thought the movie was only okay, meh, and you were going to give it a two or three star, you don't bother. And so they get these really weird bimodal distributions that represent a small number of folks, outliers on both ends. And so movie reviews tend to have Mm -hmm. some problems, right? And if you were going to use movie reviews to predict um, sort of revenue streams for upcoming movies, might or might not work. And so some studio executives mm-hmm. say, hey, we have 50 years worth of data, whatever. Uh, the Netflix folks are probably much smarter about this. But, you know, just because you have a stack of data doesn't mean it's going to tell you anything. So, so we have to back off from committing to dates on things or deciding they're going to work until the data scientists confirm that there's value there, there's indicator there, there's, you know, some kind of positive signal. Right. Um, and the other sort of big thing I see is that a lot of the data scientists, particularly the, the ones who are just coming out of some academic program, which is most of them, have have very little business experience, yep. have very little software industry experience, don't think about and don't understand what users do. And so the, the short form context that I might give my core engineering team about, you know, why it's important to track shipments for some package delivery company may not at all be obvious to my data scientists. They're going to go grab my data set and they're going to come back and tell me something really shocking like uh, higher income zip codes have lower default rates on mortgages than lower income zip codes. You may not know this. That is shocking. shocking. Um, Because nobody thought about the fact that poor people, you know, may be unable to pay their mortgages more often. So, So we as product folks have to spend a tremendous amount of time uh, putting up the guardrails, explaining the situation, walking them through the economics of our company. You know, why is it important to reduce churn? And why is it important to, you know, have happier customers? And where does that leave? And, and which segment is it? Because, yeah, because they simply don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I'll definitely link to the your recent article about some of the the practices of product management, and specifically in data science and machine learning. One, I have to say, one of the one of the key takeaways from that article that really hit me, um, where I just like was nodding my head, going, "Yeah," was um, that done means operationalized, not just having an interesting right. insight. Because <laughs> it, it's, I mean, that that has been um, something that I have I have run into numerous times myself, where you know someone tells you something's done, and you're like, great, and then you go and you're like, so when can we deploy it? And they're like, oh wait, I, I, hold on, there's a whole other bucket of work to deploy it and support. You're like, oh, okay, right. And and, and if you had just come out of an academic program around data science, done within that setting means you've built a model and it's got some good F scores or whatever you're measuring. And you can show that your model runs yep. on your machine one time against one set of data. Yeah. Right? Uh, if you were going to use that to predict the future of the stock market, you know, there's other things that have to happen that you as a newly graduated data scientist may not be familiar with. Yeah, it's like I I know that uh, you know the F one score or the AP score on your on your local machine with this tiny data set worked and that was great, 
but we have to do something at an industrial scale. So that's right. And and if, for instance, the the recommendations or insights don't ever leave that person's machine and don't make it into the applications that we sell to our customers where insights would be really handy in a particular step in the process, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. It's almost like I was gonna I was gonna say it's like if a tree falls in the forest and then I thought about it, it's, it's sort of like Schrodinger's insight, right? If no one ever saw it, did it really exist? <laughs> That's it. And and it ties right back to the outcomes question, which is we're doing a bunch of data science, we're doing a bunch of machine learning, not because we love science projects, although we do, but because we're gonna inject that insight or decision or recommendation into, for instance, you know, we're an e-commerce vendor, and if we can uh, correctly predict that that products are going to arrive a day earlier, people will buy more of them. Mm-hmm. And so if we can't put that prediction up on the commerce site where our users and buyers see it, then it accomplishes nothing. Mm-hmm. And all we've done is contributed to the, you know, the, the happy home life of a bunch of data scientists. Which is not a bad thing, but it may not be doing anything to f- for the outcomes of the uh, the organization. Indeed. How does, how does the fact that you have machine learning-based products change things for someone as a product leader as opposed to a line product manager? Like in terms of your working with the executive team and evangelizing for product, is, does it shift things? I'm not sure it makes that big a difference. Um, I was in Australia the last couple of weeks doing a series of, of uh, conferences and workshops and a really smart woman named Sally Foote, that's F-O-O-T-E, mm-hmm. had a great presentation on putting AI into her uh, products at, at uh, PhotoBox. Okay. And, and her point was, your users don't care about AI. They don't want AI. They're not interested in all this stuff. If your AI is helping them, if your machine learning is helping them, then it adds value. Unless you're selling tools to AI scientists and then you're Levi Strauss making, you know, Tents and blue jeans, um, but most of the applications of AI, machine learning related stuff, I think, should be mostly invisible to the users if they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we have to do as product folks is we have to have some escalation method where sometimes these models are wrong. In fact, we know that sometimes these models are wrong; they're never one hundred percent right. What's the escalation model? What's the adjudication? What's the complaint? sequence so somebody who gets the wrong answer or gets the wrong product or has a bad result has a way to come back to the humans at our company and get it resolved so and maybe that's as much a, a support and customer success issue as anything else but as a product leader i'm not sure it fundamentally changes anything about the job you know other than again to make sure that people's enthusiasm doesn't carry them so far ahead of the technology that we're all dreaming of stuff that doesn't work and never gets built. Yeah, totally. Totally. So I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk a little bit about some of the sort of the, the, the personal challenges that people face in, in doing these types of roles, whether you're a, a product manager, a product leader, you know, these are tough, complex, complex roles. Um, and one of the things that I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about, because I'm sure you have gotten a lot of calls about this over the years, uh, is basically, what do you, what, how do you advise product people um, or just executives in general around internalizing non-personal issues and, and things like imposter syndrome? What are you seeing and, and how do you, what are you hearing? What do you, what do you tell people? 
uh, this is a really hard problem. And, and almost every place I go, I somebody pulls me aside for a very quiet discussion away from everybody else so we could talk about this. Um, so, you know, for those who don't know, imposter syndrome, it's particularly prevalent in high achieving, high skilled folks who have put strong demands on themselves. And it's where we secretly internally think that maybe we're just not good enough. We're faking it through. My boss is going to find out at some point soon that I'm really not good and fire me. It's this internal voice. It's very difficult to, uh, to deal with. Um, so, so what do we do? I mean, and I, sometimes I play a psychologist at the office, but I'm really not one <laughs> for, for clarity. But um, uh, things I find that are useful, when we get groups of product managers together, uh, off-site or you know, someplace safe, back to your psychological safety point, and we talk about the challenges that we have, there's this moment when the folks around the room finally notice that everybody else is having the same challenges they're having, or most of the same challenges. And I think that's a really liberating moment because I get to, to change my internal monologue from I'm terrible. I, I should be able to do this stuff. It's not so hard. If my mom loved me more, you know, whatever she loved my brother mm-hmm. better, um, you know, uh, to, well, gosh, if most product managers are having this issue, then it can't just be about me. Let's, let's share coping mechanisms. Let's talk about how we deal with that as an external thing. How do we get it out of our, stomachs and hearts back in our brains as problems to be solved, jobs to be done. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, endlessly, I hear people beating themselves up on this. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but on occasion, a product manager has written a user story that wasn't perfect. Really? Really? Wow. (laughs) And you know what? (laughs) I didn't do that last week. (laughs) Nobody died and mostly it didn't make any difference. And folks who who are going to spend all weekend uh, perfecting the grammar in their user stories or wasting their time. In fact, it's often the other way around, which is my engineering team's all pissed off because I spent too much time documenting it in too much detail and they had other ways to solve it. So we're going to throw all that away anyway. Right. Um, but mm-hmm. until you hear some other folks voice that or hear some other folks talk about how the salespeople only seem to love me when they need something approved that's not already in the plan. And they take me out for drinks and dinner and they fly me with, with compliments. And then they ask me to get something done for them. You know, if you think that's about you personally, then you're not paying attention. Right. And, and so, so one thing is a lot of sharing where we get really honest in some quiet setting where it's safe. Right. And then I think there's a real coaching and mentoring opportunity here to have people talk through the concerns they have because I do a lot of this mostly with product leaders these days, but also down the organizational stack. And, you know, to have somebody else listen and, and say it out loud and realize it's not that big an issue and to point out that it's a, it's a process problem or it's a research problem or it's a staffing problem or whatever it is, uh, give somebody the freedom to cut themselves a little bit of slack. Doesn't make it go away, but, you know, honestly, every day I get up, and wonder if today's the day that the world's going to realize they don't need my help anymore. And the phone's going to go quiet and the email's going to go quiet. It hasn't happened yet. Right. Um, I'm a, I've been a solo for 18 years and it turns out, you know, you can be an overnight success if you stick with it for 18 years. But, um, 
But I think we all have that sense of concern that maybe we're not good enough. Yeah, it's something that I I, I know I've experienced many times. Uh, I remember, especially when I when I switched early in my career from marketing into engineering. My God, the first two years of my life in engineering were a constant, like daily bout in the ring with imposter syndrome. And eventually, I remember I went to, I was at a conference somewhere and I heard somebody, I saw this guy get on stage. I was, I think it was the Ruby on Rails conference. And this guy got on stage and gave a whole talk about imposter syndrome. And it was just the most liberating thing ever. I was like, oh my God, it's not just me. I'm not the only one who, you know, deals with this sense of like, you know, every day feeling like the other shoe's about to drop. And it was so liberating. So I, I love what you were just saying about the fact that you can when you when you can see that reflected back to you from other people, you you realize all of a sudden that, oh, maybe this is a, a pattern or a systemic thing, not just me. Absolutely. And and engineering teams, you know, developers, very technical folks, sort of pride themselves that each want to be the smartest person in the room. And as product people, I, I don't I think we don't want to be the smartest person in the room. We have one of the smartest teams. But it's, but it's easy, you know, if you're a junior developer to feel like you're not good at anything because everybody's talking about how good they are and how easy it was when, in fact, they worked really hard and didn't tell anybody. <laughs> in, in the same way that if you talk to salespeople, particularly enterprise salespeople, you'll notice maybe that the reasons we closed all the deals were because they were great salespeople. Right. <laughs> and the reason we lost the deals is because the product wasn't very good and the price was too high. Right. So, you know, it's rare to meet a salesperson who has a balanced view, at least expresses a balanced view of their own capabilities. So it would be easy for some new person in the sales organization to believe they're the only one who feels that way. Yeah, no, it, it, it really reminds me of one of the one of the hardest but most important lessons that's helped me in the last, I think, five years was this kind of what you were just saying about when you're in engineering, you you know, it was about four or five years ago, I switched from engineering to product. And the, one of the hardest things I had to do was to learn that my job wasn't to have the right answer and to be the guy who was right all the time. My job was to get us to the right answer by whatever means necessary, right. like pull people together, just to figure it out. But it, it wasn't, it was no longer about being smart. It was about getting us to the right answer. Right now it's still okay to be smart and it's still okay to have the right answer. Yeah, but- sure. But even better, if you have the right answer and then somehow the team gets there by themselves and convinces themselves that it was their best idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you, can, if you can facilitate other people. And again, going back to the idea of inception, which I feel like might have to just be on the, the critical skills list for someone who really wants to get after it in product. It's like, have you watched the movie Inception? I, I, sure? I have, yes. <laughs> yeah, At least I think exactly. I have. Yeah. Are you sure? I was, dream- you know? I was dreaming about watching the movie. Oh, there we go. So it definitely worked. <laughs> awesome. So one of the things uh, we're going to kind of start to close up here, but one, one last thing I wanted to talk about specifically about product and um, about product leadership and, and sort of mentoring, coaching, um, training people in, in your teams. When you think about coaching or training, teaching people who you work with and, and helping them really level up their skills in a given area, let's just take product. How do you approach it? The way I think about this problem is that there's a lot of expertise to be found or gained in the product space, and it happens at various places in the product life cycle. So there may only be a couple of times this year that have intensive pricing discussions or packaging or end-of-life discussions may only happen once every three or five years. Um, So so there's a range of things you got to do. There's lots of 
user and customer research, there's lots of market learning. There's lots of the transactional work of being with my team and making sure we're building the right things and have context. Uh, so, so those things go on all the time. But I, when, when I think about the broader range of skills, I, I'd be looking for the right moments. So the best time to coach or mentor somebody through the basics of pricing is when it's an important topic, not in their first week on the job. Because, yep. you know, you send somebody off for two days worth of, you know, workshoppy stuff in the product management 101, they get a bunch of concepts, they don't apply them for the first year. They're gone, they're wasted. Totally. Right? So, you know, the best time to talk about end of life processes is when we are considering doing that. So I'll get somebody on my team, you know, in that discussion when it's appropriate. But if I think about it from a time point of view, it's probably my obligation as a product leader or a product head to make sure that all the junior folks on my team each have an hour with me or 45 minutes with me every week to wrestle the issue of the week. Mm -hmm. So this week, it turns out to be sales escalations. And maybe they can't fix it, but at least we can talk through what that's about. And next week, it might be, um, you know, Kanban versus Scrum. And the week after that, it might be, uh, you know, we've got some holes on our development side where we don't have enough test automation folks, and they want me to come in and do, do manual testing, right? And the week after that, it's something else. And in the course of a year, or however much time you have, you've touched on many or most of the things. And the, and the goal of those discussions isn't to focus on some artifact. The goal is to skill up mentally, right? What's the framework? What's the model? Or what are the many frameworks and models? Uh, so that over time, they become more independent, more able to make their own choices. And, and usually the agreement I'm looking for is uh, I want to show them how to do it once. I want to have them show me how to do it once. The third time I'll do a little inspection and the fourth time they're on their own. And we might, you know, if we have the time in the runway, we might put together a list of 20 of those things. And if there's a hot topic this week, we deal with that. And if there's not, we pick up the next thing off the list. Perfect. Um, Cause, cause there's too much, there's too much to learn. There's too much to do. Very context dependent. Um, and the way people learn is by doing, not by being told. Yep. Yeah, but it reminds me of something I, I heard you say in, in one of your other interviews of, of um, you know, it, it all, as you said, it's all context dependent and you can't just c copy and paste from one place to another. So you have to adapt it to your, to your context. That's right. Cool. So uh, I want to wrap up here with a couple quick rapid fire questions. They're short questions. Your answers can be however long you, you like them to be. Um, so one question that I like to ask people is what is what's a small change that you've made in recent history that has had an outsized impact, whether that was personally or in your work habits, anything like that? I got a there's an application called Calendly, which lets somebody book an hour on my calendar if it's free. This would seem like a dumb, simple thing, mm -hmm. but I have a bunch of folks I coach. And rather than exchanging 15 emails, well, how about three o'clock on your time? Oh, I meant my time zone. Um, you know, they can get on the web, they can choose an hour, they can put their name in and they can book an hour. And I think that's freeing up, you know, five hours a week of wasted administrative time that add no value to anybody. Second to last question, if you could have the leaders listening to this conversation 
make just one change inside their team or their organizational culture that you think would have the biggest impact on that environment, what would that change be? I think I'd emphasize with executive teams, especially, and product leaders, that product has a real skill set, that we shouldn't be hiring first for subject expertise. We shouldn't be hiring first for developer skills. We should be hiring first, if we can, for somebody who's been in the product job at least a little while, because they will know an awful lot of things about how to do product. That would be obvious if you were hiring for sales or development or marketing or anything else. But I see so many folks decide that the product job is easy, so we're going to hire for subject expertise. Perfect. Um, and then, you know, I know that uh, you have a fantastic blog uh, for every. I will link to this in the show notes. It's Mironov.com, which I believe is M-I-R-O-N-O-V.com. And um, but is there any anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Any requests of the of the listeners? Uh, I think there's a lot of great product thinkers out there. Um, uh, Teresa Torres comes to mind. Um, Jer- Jared Spool is really smart. Uh, you know, Tristan Cromer is really good. Uh, Daniel Elizalde has done a lot of really good work. There's tremendous numbers of really smart folks out there, and they're working hard to put their material out. They're learning out for free. And I would just encourage everybody to pick five or ten people that they haven't been following and they haven't been reading. And dive in, see which ones are useful, see which ones play to your situation. Uh, let other people help you get smart. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Rich, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for the time and for sharing all your wisdom with us. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. It's, it's been a huge pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.